Hello and welcome to another episode of Don't Filter Feelings. I'm Rich Blackwood and on this podcast we have conversations about issues that matter with people who have stories to share. Over the past few weeks, the death of George Floyd, a black man in police custody, has provoked debates about racism all over the world. George Floyd was arrested in the city of Minneapolis for allegedly using counterfeit money to buy a pack of cigarettes. He died after a white police officer kneeled on his neck for nearly nine minutes. His death has led to many people sharing their support for the Black Lives Matter movement through protests and on social media. In this special episode of Don't Filter Feelings, we're hearing from Talia Grant, who plays Brooke Osborne in Hollyoaks, and Trevor Toussaint, who plays Reverend Devereaux, about their experiences of racism. And be very aware, this is going to be a very honest conversation, so you will hear strong language. Hello, Talia and Trevor. Hey, how are you doing, Richard? I'm not going to remind you about it's Trevor A. Toussaint, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. um, It feels good to be here. And before we jump into what we're discussing today, um, Mm. this is called Don't Filter Feelings. Essentially, it sounds really bad to say, but it's the the black cast of Hollyoaks, right, um, speaking... um, but it's it's something that we believe is very necessary. And I just want to state something before we kind of just start going into questions and answers and speaking about how we feel, is that um, I'm sure people will hear this podcast and just naturally assume that we are playing cleanup for use of a better expression, um, especially after, you know, the press um, stuff with regards to Rachel I um so you know I, I I have nothing at all to say on Rachel's situation. Rachel's a good friend of mine, and Rachel is taking her stance that she needs to take, and I respect her. But I just want to say to the audience listening that this podcast was actually developed before the situation even happened, right? And it's and it's quite it's, it's quite tough for us because. Obviously, we're trying to, um, we're doing this in order to affect change, um, you know, move, uh, move forward in the most constructive way, maybe even say some things that might be hard for people to hear, but that's the reason why we're here and they've selected us to speak on it. And the situation that happened, it came, it, it came at a bad time for this, but the right time for Rachel, which is understandable, because it felt like we've now developed this to that. But it, I, I sincerely... Hopefully, people know me well enough to know that I don't lie. I just wanted to clear that up first because, um, I, as I say, I don't want people to think that we, especially as the, uh, the, the cast of colour, are disingenuous to our own people and then everybody else. We are not that. We are very much rooted in what we believe in, rooted as people of colour and rooted in trying to make real changes for the next generation to come through. So please do not ever think that this was anything disingenuous. Just want to say that. Now, Talia, with everything that's happening right now, how are you feeling? A whole spectrum of emotion. It's been quite exhausting, draining, empowering, frustrating, angering, kind of enlightening. There's a, there's a mass awakening kind of going on and I think that everyone's actually taking a step back to amplify black voices and that is very encouraging. 
um, but of course we're also extremely exposed to a lot of videos and things to try and bring awareness to what's going on and for black people uh, me included could be very triggering um, to be exposed to dehumanizing videos and um, violence and things of that sort so I've been trying to take breaks and also recenter myself and I think that self-care whilst black is a radical act I'm glad that we're having this discussion, though. I think that that is what's made me feel very good today. I do want to ask Trevor the same question. How are you feeling at this time, Trevor? Richard, to be honest with you, I suffer from depression. Right? And um, normally, what happens with me in depression, I've done a lot of counselling around it, and I've, I, the interest in the don't filter feelings things, I've spoken about my depression over the years. I'm not, I don't filter it at all, but uh, normally what happens with me is when I feel an episode coming on I have certain trigger points I feel the episode coming on and people most people who don't know me will know that I'm going through so I, I have coping strategies and coping mechanisms that I put in place but because of this lockdown and what's been going on with that um my mother died eight months ago I was grieving that process I was you know suddenly work ceased and we were in lockdown um the stresses that came with that Back in the bosom of the family, I got ill, so on and so forth and so on. And then suddenly Black Lives Matter hit. We saw George Floyd with the knee on the neck. I was suddenly in an episode without realizing I was in an episode. I found myself curled up on the floor in a fetal position crying. And I think the, the, the knee on the neck was the, the straw that broke the camel's back for me personally. You know, nine minutes, and I watched it all. Nine minutes of trauma. Um, reliving trauma because I've seen stuff like this over and over and over and over again. Didn't surprise me that he was killed. You know, um, what got to me was the look on the gentleman's face who was killing him. Yes. With his hands in his pockets and his eyes kind of like, yeah, another day at the office and you and I both do martial arts. Yes. We know that if you put pressure on someone's neck, and the person starts to choke out or pass out, they tap, or we feel it and we release. And he knew that too. Yeah, of course he knew it. And that, that's my point, Talia. He knew that too. And so it's, it's uh, how am I feeling? Right now, um, during this process, I have felt anger. I have felt chaotic. I have felt sadness. I have felt uh, rage, because rage is a different thing to just anger. I have felt fear. Um... All of those, all of those feelings, you know, compassion for ourselves, for my people, you know, um, hurt, the hurt is unbelievable, you know, and I am beginning to slowly feel a sense of healing. Tell you, I must ask you, like, so do you mind me asking how old you are, darling? I'm 18. Your experience in school growing up, um, am I right in saying that there wasn't a lot of black people in your school or teachers and things like that? Uh, I've never ever had a black teacher before um so no there wasn't there wasn't any any adult representation there growing up um only obviously coming back to my family there was but in you know the education system i never saw anyone like me um yeah i went to school in what would be classed as a predominantly white area back then. It was an area called Sutton in Surrey. And we didn't expect, if we saw a black teacher, we'd be shocked because we knew 
the time we was living in. But you yeah. now, you're millennial. You was born, what, 2002? I'm Gen Z. Exactly. We would think as the the adults in the room, or should I say the older people, elder people in the room, <laughs> that it, things have changed dramatically that you would see teachers of colour. Did you find it the norm? I think that I found it the norm because the system that that we live in and the system the education system the curriculums um the way that it's built and the way that it is um taught to us is built on racism and um it is an inherently racist system we can look at the lack of representation and then we can look at the actual education system i remember coming home um, and I was just really upset because I'd come home, my, my mum would do my hair so nicely, um, in braids, um, I'd have my cane row with, like, ribbons in, it wasn't appreciated, I, I was never seen as pretty, um, and I would come home feeling very excluded and isolated because of kind of the lack of acceptance and at such a young age I was almost having an identity crisis when I came home and I explained what I was going through my parents basically they taught me about myself taught me um that I was beautiful reassured me um that it wasn't my problem um but when it in terms of education and learning um I was taught about my heritage and, and, you know, being half Jamaican, but I never learned anything about racism. I never learned, not even racism. I never learned anything about being black or blackness. Um, and so I had to kind of do the research myself uh, growing up. And I think that it, it was... Um, maybe like year nine I was maybe 15 when these things were becoming more clear to me that I I, I felt like an outcast and I was experiencing like outright racism I had um people calling me the n-word and I'm thinking okay this, I know that this isn't right so I have to come I'm I'm now really annoyed at this point I come home and I'm telling my parents about all of this and they're like whoa we're gonna have to you're good like that they basically did the same same thing you know telling me about myself encouraging me to do the research my dad really came into clutch at this time um you know we took a trip to Jamaica and I saw my grandparents and um, I really just allowed myself to be all of me without having to conform to a, a certain ideology and stereotype that people wanted me to fit. And so that was really helpful. I also, I started unlearning and relearning basically because in the school system we are taught racism basically it's 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 extremely exclusionary especially when it comes to history we learn so much about Tudors and how the British conquered this and that but they fail to actually give us the honest truth 
And in doing that, we are continuing to build a racist society because we are losing touch with our roots. And um, when we lose touch of our roots, we start to think, okay, it's just meant to be like this, I guess. And so I was having confusion because I'm thinking, wait, actually, it's it's not meant to be like this. It's this doesn't feel right. I'm not learning about, you know, the black British legends there are. Um, There's so many history heroes that we're not taught about. Um, And if we are taught about any black history, it's just slavery. And it makes you feel very helpless almost because you're like, oh, so my people were just like, oh, we just were enslaved and that's it. I want to bring Trevor in now. Um, Trevor, Mm. how was your experience going to school back in the 70s? Not to say as a comparison, but just to even see if there is any change from then to now. (laughs) Tyler just explained my experience. (laughs) Let's let's be real here, right? You know, um, I used to watch, interestingly enough, I used to watch this program, a program called Love Thy Neighbour. That program used words like lignog, wog, Sambo. Um, They never actually said, I'm going to say this word. I do not agree with it. I do not use it for myself. But I never actually said the word nigger. But nignog meant nigger, basically. Um, Now, I would go to school. I'd watch. I think it was on a Tuesday. I could be wrong. And I'd go to school on a Wednesday. And I'd be getting in fights with people. I'd have teachers referring to me from that program as those words. Oh, car quiet, Sambo, so on and so forth. Right? So that was the outright, you know, it, it was the everyday occurrence. It wasn't anything new to, to me, right? This is what I experienced on a daily basis. Before I left my house, I knew this was going to happen. So before I left my house, I put on my armor and off I went. Um, within the school system, exactly as Talia so eloquently put it, you know, um, I was taught history as written by the white conquerors, basically. I was not taught anything about my history. The only thing I was taught about my history is I'm a slave. I'm a, a, a child of a slave. I looked at maps of Africa. We never, When we spoke about Africa, we spoke about Africa like it was a tiny little place. The maps that I would see of Africa back then would fit into England. Africa consists of over 57 different countries. We talk about Africa like one generic place. So the whole system was set about, Tyler said it, you know, if if your education system is racist to begin with, then right from the onset, the whole system is set up against you. History was one of my favourite subjects. And we learned about going over the top when they were in the trenches. Yeah, yeah. But we weren't taught that black people were the first people that had to run. And that was, it was so sad because even I remember looking at history books and you would see the picture of the, the British running to the next trench and the Germans just mowing them down. So I just grew up thinking that it was white soldiers. And then I, when I did my due diligence, like Talia said, you mm-hmm. found out that what they would do is they would send the black soldiers first. Right, do you know what I mean? To get mowed down and then they would cover ground, right, mm-hmm. that way. But we weren't taught that. So they were like lambs to the slaughter. I don't believe in the education system. If Tyler's saying this is happening in her lifetime and we're talking 40 years difference, right, what has actually really changed? We now hear the term micro microaggression. That's what we've been, we're learning now. Yeah, yeah. Talia, what are 
some of the things that you once you leave your house that you have to face that white people wouldn't even realize or maybe they do and they try to turn a blind eye to it whatever it is being called attractive solely for my skin color is not a compliment it's things like that it's even when i'm walking and a white person will bump into me like i'm invisible that in itself is is microaggression it's being spoken over and te- and being told being made to feel like my my experiences are invalid somehow um it's it's people touching my hair it's people not being able to do my hair it's 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 things like that it's the little things that maybe you feel very uncomfortable about and do deeply impact you yet you can't quite put your finger on it and I think that those things are different because especially in Britain it's almost worse to call someone racist than them being actually racist so I think a lot of a lot of what we experience um is microaggression because it's so normalized here it's difficult because i feel like i try to block these things out even though it sounds like it should be a simple question it's quite hard because mm. we live with it day by day yeah it's you can't put your finger on it that's the problem that is what microaggression is um you know it's the backhanded compliments as well it's it's like oh you're like i love your skin like i can't wait to have mixed race babies it's that it's like oh that makes me so uncomfortable like oh i love light skin gals like oh my gosh one of the things i take great issue with and maybe it's me maybe a bit long in the tooth now and you know the older you get the more you find that you're very strong in your stance and you start to not really give a damn and my thing is that I don't care. It's going to sound mad because we're talking about Black Lives Matter, blah, blah, blah. I don't care if you're racist as long as you're honest about it. Like, mm. but, and this is what I mean by that is why adhere to a way of thinking if you can't be real about what it is you feel? I completely, I completely agree with you. Like, if I do, let's say I'm not a male chauvinist, I'm none of these things, I'm not a homophobe, I'm none of these things. But if I was... I wouldn't pretend that I'm not, right? If I, if let's say I was a homophobe, let's say, and then somebody picked up on and said, do you like gay people? If I didn't, I would say, I don't. Even if I sounded ignorant, because if it's what, if it's my thought and if it's what I truly believe, then why would I, I would feel, I would feel more, I feel like a coward. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and this is why the microaggression things really, really upset us. You can see it, but you can't put your finger on it. But you know it's there. It just, it's it's so presented to you. And you know it when you see it. But it's, I think that um, to, to kind of point out what you're saying, it makes me, it ties in with what we were saying before with... Um, like when you're maybe in secondary school um you get away with saying racist humor because obviously the school system isn't built to defend the people that it's it naturally oppresses Trevor what's your thoughts on this I I I walk on a bus and I sit down on a bus or a tube let's say a tube or a train and I'm sitting on a tube is actually a better example I'm sitting on the tube see someone to the side someone gets on the tube and it's a white person then they look around uh, uh, and uh, there's only one seat left and the seat that's left is next to me and they look, they will look directly at me and will choose to stand. Now, if you say to someone uh, who is uh, white, 
that 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 is microaggression, they will immediately discount what you're saying because they haven't had to live through that time and time and time and time again. Microaggression happens in all aspects of our lives. It's, for example, when someone says to me, even at this point in my life, someone's, oh, you're, you're really eloquent, aren't you? Pause. Wow. And there's a pause. And, you, you, you know, since I was a kid, oh, you're really eloquent as opposed to what? Mm. Do you know? And there's a pause. And it, it, what's not said, you're ele- really eloquent for a black person, for a black boy, for a black man, do you know? Like finish the sentence. I know that that's what you want to say. This is the thing that it's micro, microaggression happens in all aspects of our lives and has always happened. It's on, I think now the younger generation, what they have found the term and coined it, because I think back in the day, on my day and your day, we didn't have that term, microaggression. It's like gaslighting. You made, you're made to think it's normal. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, that's the whole point. It's, it, is, it is seen as normality within all stratas of society. And when we question it and when we raise it, we, it is then seen as somehow we are the problem. You know, if I, if I challenge something, suddenly somebody will cry or somebody will feel affronted, and which I call weapons oh, of mass... I ma- dealt with this yesterday. Well, I call it weapons, <laughs> of, I call it weapons of mass distraction, right? <laughs> and basically, if someone will start crying... Uh, or someone will start feeling affronted by what I've said, and the actual point that I'm making is then lost. We've distracted from that point. Let's talk about what's happening on the other side. Let's talk about this person trying to ease their pain, forgetting that upper. Now, is that not microaggression? I just want to say this conversation is very, even though I'm aware. This, this is still very healing for me to hear this because it's just, I hope that everyone listening to this, this is this affirms to you that you're not being delusional. You're not imagining these things because it does, it does cause, you know, white supremacy breeds hatred. It breeds ignorance and it breeds these feelings of insecurity. And it, do, it, it you have to do a lot of unlearning to, to actually spot these things. Indeed. And so... This this conversation is honestly it's very helpful for me even just just knowing this and contextualizing it. We're talking about we have to do a lot of unlearning. So does so does white society mm. have to do a lot of unlearning and a lot of learning and a lot of listening and hearing and acceptance of some painful things for them to accept. It is painful to accept that you have racism within you. Uh, intrinsically in you systemically the whole society has a racist policy that it starts from education right through your whole society that's cannot be easy and i'm not making excuses and i'm not saying you know um uh, uh, i'm not doing anybody's healing for them what i'm saying you know it has to come from you as well. You can't just expect us to can't constantly be saying what's wrong and, and, and then trying to educate you on what's happening. You need to go out and do some work and educate yourself and see how do you make a change? How do I make a change within this? Do we then alleviate some of the blame on certain white people that, that have these views on the premise that they don't even know themselves or that they were being taught this? Or is it that we 
that like as a man i've always said the women from emmeline penkhurst all the way up the suffragettes and the suffragists they had to fight for equal rights the me too movement where men had to stand up and be accountable speaking as a man i can say that a lot of men that were inappropriate were aware that they were inappropriate but they they did it because it was it's socially acceptable it wasn't mm-hmm. that they were naive to it i can say that generally as a man and, and mm-hmm. you know people could say but you can't speak for all men but there's something innate in a man that just knows that when a man and a woman's on a train or or she walks past him at work and he, he taps her on her bum it's because sexually he wants to touch her but he yes. knows he knows i'm not supposed to do this because guess what he also knows i don't want no one touching my daughter or my mum or my sister in this way so he does know that but he but his thing is he, he kind of becomes selfish and goes but i don't care about all that i just want to do it so then when women stood up and went no no more it wasn't it wasn't that men had to unlearn that. If anything, it was just more like, you, you know what? You just got to stop. But, and, and it shouldn't be half you to stop because you already knew that what you was doing was wrong. Can I jump in here? Yeah, sure. The experiment that was done in America, whereby I um, can't remember her Jane Jane. Uh, Jane Elliott. Jane Elliott. Uh, said, right, uh, to the audience members, uh, if you think that the treatment of black people in America today uh, if you would put up with it, stand up. And not one person stood up. And she repeated it. She said, I don't think you understand the question. If you think that the treatment of black people in America today is something that you would put up with, please stand up. Now, still no one stood up. But when, as the penny dropped in the audience, you could see people beginning to realise what she was asking. Now, so, so to your point... I level that question to every single white person in this country. If you think the treatment of black people in this country, it, you would put up with you yourself stand up. And if you don't stand up, then you know exactly that the treatment's not right. To the white people that are listening that may have these views towards black people, my thing is this, why have these views if you can't stand by them, right? Whether they're right or wrong, because you know, if you want to be wrong and strong, then that's your God-given right. But but do not, like, my, my thing is, is that, because it feels like sometimes white people, certain white people are trained in the answer rather than being honest about what it is. So, i.e., you know, these forms of microaggression where it's like, you know, when if somebody says, like, like Trevor said, when I started to laugh, that when you point out that somebody's being prejudiced towards you, they start crying, right? And it's like, and it feels like a trained response of flustering, start crying. And what they don't realize is the black person looks and goes, here we go. You are now, we don't feel sorry for you. We just go, you're actually insulting me because you know that by crying, everybody's going to go, what's the matter? And then we now have to calm you down. And the, and the thing you did, which you are not strong enough to stand by, gets pushed underneath the carpet, say it's like a lucky getaway. And what we really want to say to you is, no, forget the crying. Stand by what you say. If that's how you feel, then stand up and say, do you know what? I don't like black people, right? Because at least we then know, okay, then we don't need to deal with you. You stand by it or you go, I did not realise I was doing that or I realise I do that, I will make an effort to change it. Accountability. Yes. So I guess the elephant in the room, people, they see us on TV and the first thing they're going to be saying is, so do you not face it in TV? And then essentially, if we have experienced it, what we're trying to do in TV as black people 
one thing about Hollyoaks that I respect is that when we was developing this, I said that we, we will also have to address things that maybe we've experienced on Hollyoaks or me on EastEnders or whatever, and we have to kind of face it. And they was like, do you know what? Then it has to be done. Uh, systemic racism exists, as we said, in all stratas of society, and, uh, and television is no exception to that. You know, um, Lime, who I work for, right, is no exception to this. I've said this time and time again, there is not one person of colour, black, mixed race, and when I say white people, I identify white people who have colour in them, as far as I know, that has one position of authority within Lime Pictures. Right? How many departments are there in Lime Pictures? Now, why is that? Now, not only do they, it's, they're not in authority as in the head of those departments, they're not even deputy of, of those departments, right? Um, I think I've seen two black directors in all the time I've been there. At the moment, there are no black directors there. There are definitely no black producers. Do you know, as we go up, the scale becomes, well, just there's, there's no one of colour that represents, you know? Um, and so why is that? What, what is it about Lyme, for example, where people of colour do not have those positions? And within the whole building, I think there's more black cast members than there are people within certain departments, if you count all the people together. Do you know? So what is it about Lyme that, what, what is Lyme getting wrong? Let's ask that question. They're getting a lot of things right, but what are they getting wrong so that people of colour do not feel they can apply to Lyme for work? What, what is it that keeps those people out? And when those people are in, what is it that stops them from going up the ranks? For Holyoaks to decide to do this podcast, knowing the temperature of the room, right? Knowing the temperature of outside, knowing how we individually and, and, and collectively feel, they, they are putting their neck on the chopping block. Agreed. Talia, you want to you say something? I wanted to bring up a quote by Angela Davis um, when she said, I have a hard time accepting diversity as a synonym for justice. Diversity is a corporate strategy and diversity without structural transformation simply brings those who were previously excluded into a system as racist, misogynistic as it was before. And um, that I really felt that because um, I think that it's amazing that there is a black cast and there's, you know, there's all of us um, and there is that diversity. But I can't help but feel that sometimes in the industry um, and in life in general, we they treat black people like we're disposable. Um, they can capitalise off of us without actually doing the real work behind the scenes. And so as much as it is important for us to be out here, um, for people to see us and be able to see someone that they feel like they can relate to and see themselves in it doesn't take away from the fact that we're putting ourselves up in higher positions i guess we're in the house you could say um and it's difficult because we are still exposed to racism and that doesn't go away 
and it's difficult because it's really important to actually change the system within um, for black people to feel equal. Um, it's great for us to be in a high up position, but we're, we're still going to experience it. Like the revolution will not be changed by diversity training or, or racism training. It is changed by people changing their attitude and the way that the structural system works. Um, and so I'm, I'm extremely grateful for Hollyoaks because especially with my autism, um, they really made that effort to, um, they all went on training and I've just felt really accepted and understood. And I was finally in a place where people didn't view me as the problem. I realized that the people at the time were the problem. Sorry if my, my notifications going off, but, um, I actually realized that it's people's outlook and attitude that needs to change. Um, and I'm glad that I could say that, but um, it is also clear to me that racism hasn't left. It doesn't matter how much education you get. Um, it doesn't matter. You could be in like the top job, but you're still going to experience it simply because of the way that the system is built. Um, and in Hollyoaks, um, I have dealt with difficult situations um and microaggressions um i don't know how much i feel to go into or i feel like i'd have to have another conversation no, look, let me just say this and this is this is probably why this question is so relevant mm. we shouldn't i i and I, and I stop you on purpose for for a reason which i explained we shouldn't feel nervous to speak on things. Amen. But there's no doubt that we do because naturally we still have our jobs. So it's, it's, it's a tough, it's a very tough one. Right. And, and I'm glad that, you know, I guess Liam are listening because this is another part of the, the prejudice that we have to deal with. And I'm not saying this is prejudice, but what I mean by this is that to ever, uh, anybody that has to speak out uh, about an injustice is always taking a leap of faith and 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 and, and facing the system that's been designed systemically to, to fight against justice. So in all, so as I say, when I gave the example of um, women's rights, right? You know, certain women knew that when they were stepping up and standing out and going, "Okay, I'm gonna," they knew that by doing that, I could lose my career. By doing that, I can lose everything that I built or everything I'm working towards. When really and truly, that shouldn't be a fear. So the reason why the reason why I, I stop you, Talia, and I actually say, you know, speak on it. We'll speak. We've got more podcasts. We'll speak on it more then. Yeah, it's actually a very good thing because people can hear it and understand that they're in the system, and it's not it's not as easy, even though they're trying to change things because we are in the system trying to change it right do you know what i mean and you know so we still 
we can't go in guns blazing, but we're firing shots, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's exactly, <laughs> that is exactly how I feel. You know what, it, and it's not even the fact that it's like I have nothing to say. It's like, which, what do I choose to say? Because there is, there's an endless conversation. We could delve into so many different aspects of um, blackness and our experience and systemic oppression. Um, and I think I completely agree it is difficult, especially because you always feel like it's very vulnerable and it's not even just a situ it's not even just like this is what the person said it's not just what they said it's how it it actually uh, mentally impacts you and um what you go through it has a prolonged um it has prolonged effect basically and it, it is quite traumatizing you, you you've hit the nail on the head it, it it has a prolonged effect it is quite traumatizing and and it and it um one, from what Richard was saying, and from, you know, to kind of correlate what I'm hearing from both of you, is the the attitude that we, you know, if okay, the attitude that might be prevalent out there that if we do not speak out, we are not doing anything, or we are not saying anything. Um, what is speaking out? I have lost jobs because I've spoken out, and I'm not scared of losing my job. I have been, I I have been vilified because I've spoken out against racism within companies. Do you know, I've been beaten up because I've spoken out. I've been arrested because I've spoken out. You know, um, Rachel, I've never mentioned Rachel at all since she spoke out. Rachel spoke out and she spoke her truth and I applaud her for speaking her truth. Completely, and all of that is completely valid. But but what was really interesting was a, a section of our own people then decided to make a split between what Rachel was saying and between Kelly speaking out. Now, I find that really interesting because Kelly, if people knew the amount of work that Kelly has done, you know, for uh, against racism within this industry, within Lime, within, you know, the music industry, the stuff that she's done, it, it's, it's like... What what they both are doing the same thing. I think that is so true, um, and it's also so important to know that everyone's part in this revolution is is all individual and it's all different. It's not about it's not Instagrammable. It's not Instagrammable. It's not a repost. It's actually doing the action. Some people's path is going out and protesting. Someone else's is is speaking inside corporations. Another person's is speaking to their family. Another person's is unlearning the programming that they've dealt with. Another person's is knocking a statue over. Like everyone's path is different and it's all equally valid. We're all making change. We can't all be doing the same thing, uh, but all of it is doing something. I think this is a good way to wrap up this one. But before I do that, if you guys got any final thoughts before I say what I'm going to say. Yeah, uh, and my final thoughts is to... to re- I keep saying this, remember what we are fighting for. You know, I, I you know sometimes that gets lost, you know, uh, and it also gets lost sometimes. Um, and I never want this to get lost to white people when I say this to, to white people. We are fighting for the right to coexist, right, on an equal footing. I'm not fighting for you to be my best friend. I'm not fighting for you to like me, but I am definitely saying to you, I coexist on this planet with you on an equal footing. And as Talia so brilliantly put it, it you know, to us, it each one of us do this in the way we best can. 
You know, it systemic re, um, racism didn't come about by one action. It came about by many action by many different people. To break that down, for us people of color, it comes about by many actions, many different ways that we break this down to reach the point where we go, yeah, come to our table today rather than also having to come to your table. You come to our table. <laughs> Drops mic. <laughs> I just wanted to say that um, to my white people, white listeners, um, none of this is comfortable. It, it is very uncomfortable. Um, and it's important to not go straight into defen- defense mode. Um, and it's important to listen as well as amplify black voices. Um, yeah, none of it's comfortable addressing your privilege um, and the things that we go through and the things that you benefit from. It's not a comfortable feeling, but it's not comfortable for it. We're not in a comfortable time. None of this is comfortable. But you need to be open to listening and seeing other people's experiences. Um, And I also wanted to say to black people, um, it's so important right now to just look after yourself. Um, Everything's happening so fast and our mental health is... is, um, a big priority at this time and it's easy it's so easy to get caught up in all of this and as much as it is um angering and as much as it it makes you very very annoyed it's about what you do with that anger that brings about change um so healing through that to not only help yourself but past and future generations is extremely important. It's what you do with that pain and trauma. You never fully get over it. It stays with you because it is a part of you, but you just learn how to um, use that to your advantage. Um, We are so much more powerful black people. We are not worthless. We are not, we're not, we're not less. I think that the reason why we are so oppressed, and this isn't to upset any of my non-black people, but it's because they know our power and they know our strength. And that is why we are seen as an intimidating, a target. That is why they fight so hard to suppress everything that we have and get rid of our beliefs and our roots. And so it's very important to come back to yourself, um, your ancestors, just heal, healing. This is all healing and change is very uncomfortable, but it brings about a brighter day and I think that that's what we're seeing um this is only the beginning as well and I think that Hollyoaks are doing an amazing job and this is this is another path of change everything that you've both said you've kind of encompassed everything that I was going to say when listening to this you cannot you would you would be foolish I'll even go so far as to say that you'd be foolish to want to take issue with any of the points made and the reason why I say that, and, and I, and I, you know, I've, I kind of categorise myself as a very intelligent man, so I choose my words carefully. That you cannot, if you want to skirt around it, you can't, because I, I, I'll checkmate you. And what I mean by that is that if you find that you take issue with anything that was stated on here, which was always about showing how we are made to feel devalued 
where it even comes from. There you go. Because that is what Don't Filter Feelings is. We can't filter ourselves. We have to actually use empathy and understand how other people are feeling. And no one was saying all lives matter until we started saying black lives matter. It's not that all lives don't matter, but right now we need to use our empathy and humility to see that we need help right now. And so it's not enough to just sit back. You need to actually use what your feelings to, to help those in need. It's not, yeah, basically. <laughs> Has there been any other race that through prejudice have wanted to kill the person that's not like them? I want you to really think about this so you can understand what it's like to be of colour. When, when black people are deemed as prejudiced or racist or whatever you want to deem us as, I want you to find a time in history where black people were killing people that were not black because of their colour. Look through any history book, look through any textbook, and I dare you to try and find it, and I guarantee you won't. However, to present day, if we want to go back, just back as far as slavery, because our history goes before them, but let's just go back as far as slavery. To now, there are pictures, there are stories, right? I mean, real life pictures that people took of lynchings. How come, right? Not even how come, have you not noticed that when white people are racist, they hate us so much that they want us dead. It's not even a case of, okay, you cross the road because I don't want to share the same street as you, or I don't want to be on the same tube or sit next to you like Trevor said. You want us dead, right? Which then speaks to the higher thing of, in terms of what Tally was saying and what we've basically been trying to teach you is that, just think about that. Even if you're, even if you're a person that's listening and you have racist views, I challenge you to, go into history books and find a time where black people were killing white people because of their colour. Just as a challenge. By the next podcast, we should have emails saying, actually, Richard, it was here. I guarantee you, you won't find it. Right? But you if can I, have that discussion. Yeah, but if I was to then say, and, and at the, in the same challenge, I want you to find the opposite, where white people killed or wanted to kill black people because of colour, you wouldn't even want to partake in this challenge because you'd feel insulted. You'd feel, you'd feel like shit because you would know that and you would actually go, that's unfair. And it's like, but it's not unfair. It's the reality that racist people want black people dead. I, I, I think that this is a good note to wrap on this one. I think that we'll have more, right? Jamie? Yeah, can I just say, can I can I say one more thing? I feel like we can just go on, but... I just want to say also that... Um, I sometimes hear quite a lot, oh, why are you making it about race? Um, and I just want to say that black people, we wake up every day with the knowledge that we're going to be oppressed. Amen. It's never, it's never a second thought. It's never brought up. It's never a topic. It's never a trend. It's our life. So we live knowing that we are black. With white people, it's like, oh, okay, I look at the news, like, okay, let's have this discussion. This is not a topic for us, this is an ongoing thing. So if you could just take the decency to actually listen and not just treat this as a topic and keep the momentum, that is, that is appreciated and I think that's true allyship. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Dog Filter Feelings. Earlier on, you will have heard Trevor talking about Lime Pictures. That's the production company that makes Hollyoaks. And he's talking about Lime Liverpool, where we all work, and not Lime's London production business. Hollyoaks has also given us this statement in response to Trevor's comments. Hollyoaks celebrates inclusivity on screen and off. Whilst we believe that is evident on screen, we recognise that we need to do more to increase and support inclusivity behind the camera, especially for black writers, directors and crew. We have significantly increased the numbers of writers of colour working on Hollyoaks, but we need to do more to support black writers in particular. We strive to overcome the significant barriers that black people face within our industry. And through the New Writing North Hollyoaks Award, the Lime Intern Scheme, the Channel 4 Production Training Scheme, and Lime's own networking and workshop events, we support up-and-coming TV talent with entry-level opportunities on Hollyoaks. We need to broaden and amplify these schemes to encourage and support new entrants from black backgrounds in particular, and to nurture black creative talent at all levels within Lime. Lime's Liverpool site has been integral in providing vital regional employment and will continue to do that together with endeavouring to be more representative and inclusive both behind the camera at Hollyoaks and at Lime Pictures across the board. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and thank you so much for listening.